Today's scripture, Genesis 11, one through nine. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole, over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they will propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there and there confuse their language, so that they may not want to understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we are so often immersed in words. Uh, we talk a lot. We hear uh, words uh, shouted at us, God, in our lives through technology so rarely sit in silence. God, we've just heard your word. We pray that your word would speak to us in a different, in a unique way. We pray this by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, I wonder if you have ever had, I'm sure you have, the experience where Maybe you're at home and you're, you're thinking about something and you, uh, you get up and you're going to do something and you go walk into the other room. You walk into the other room and you look around and you think, why am I here? <laughs> uh, you ever have that experience? Seems like it happens uh, increasingly. Um, in some ways I wonder if that's a metaphor for life. You know, we, we get to a certain point in life uh, you know, I'm, I'm coming to uh, terms with the fact that I'm middle-aged. Uh, my body is sore in ways that it never was a decade ago. And uh, increasingly, I feel like I uh, find myself at a place in life where it's easy to say, you know, I've worked, uh, started a family, established in a career. Maybe you've said the same things, but you can take a step back and think, why am I here? What am I doing? What's, what's the goal of all of this? Uh, many of you are retired, I can imagine. Uh, actually, I have a, my, my neighbor recently retired a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me the other day, I said, what's it like to be retired? He said, well, I was at the dentist a couple days ago, and as I was leaving the dentist, uh, the receptionist said, let me make a, uh, your next appointment in six months, and she looks up the day, you know, six months out on a Tuesday at 11.15 and says, what are you doing then? And he says, 
I think I'm free. <laughs> um, can get to a place in our lives and wonder why we're here. What, what do we do when we, when we get to that point in life and say, why, why am I here again? What am I doing? Well, I think what I do when I walk into that room and I can't remember why I came, I go back to the place I started. I back up, retrace my steps. Or, or we could put it like this. If you've ever been reading a book and you get into a book and you're maybe a third halfway into this book and you're connected to the book, you're, you're excited about the plot, but then life happens and a couple days go by and a couple weeks go by and you, you haven't had time to come back and then you maybe get a, a free weekend vacation, you pick this book up again and you start reading in the middle of the book and you think, who, who are these characters again? What's going, what do you do? You have to go back to the beginning of the story. You have to pick up the plot line. That's what we're doing in Genesis. This series, uh, since the middle of the summer, we have been going back to the beginning of the story to pick up the plot line because it reminds us of why we're here. We all find ourselves at times where the realities of life catch up to us and we find ourselves thinking, what am I doing here? And so we're beginning again at the beginning of the story, picking up the narrative so we can remember why we're here and what our lives are all about. And we're looking at this uh, this morning at the fourth event in Genesis. Genesis, I remember when I was studying for ordination exams back a long time ago, memorizing an outline of every book in the Bible. Genesis is always, uh, this outline has always stuck with me. Four events and then four people. There are four events in the first half of Genesis, four cosmic events, the creation, the fall, the flood, and then the Tower of Babel. Before the focus of Genesis narrows in on this one family and we see four patriarchs, we see four events. And the narrative of the Tower of Babel, it reminds us why we're here. It shows us how in our sin we're prone to go astray and it points us to God's remedy. It's a story that I think if we have the ears to hear what it is saying to us is far more sobering about the reality of who we are as human beings than we tend to let ourselves think. And yet it's also more full of hope than we are likely to believe. So look with me at the Tower of Babel. The first thing we see in this narrative is is the tragedy, the tragedy of Babel. After the flood, it says that people begin to move eastward and they come to a plain in the land of Shinar. Shinar is ancient Babylon, modern day Iraq. And there people begin to build a city and verse four says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And then God sees what they're doing and it says that he confuses their languages, their language and disperses them across the earth. And uh, we could read this and think like, what's going on here? <laughs> like what was so wrong about what they were doing? They're, they're building a skyscraper, they've invented new technology. You know, they go from stacking stones to stacking bricks, very high tech. They're excited, they wanna build this high-tech ziggurat building. What's so bad about what they were doing? It sounds like they're just trying to get by and God frustrates their efforts. What's wrong with this? And the the answer, I think, to this question, to understand what's really going on here, this, this, this account only makes sense within the context of the larger 
narrative of Genesis. Because when God created Adam and Eve, he told them, all the way back in Genesis 1, verse 28, he said, fill the earth and subdue it. And over and over again, and I've mentioned this over and over again, that God creates as an act of love, God creates as this outward moving generative spirit, and then he creates human beings to live in his image. And he says, I want you to move outward. I want you to love. I want you to fill the earth. And so he's told them that in Genesis 1. And then again, after the flood in Genesis 9, God says again to the human race, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's act in creation, this generative act is to be our vocation. We find meaning and purpose as we mirror God in this outward facing posture of life. So God says, fill the earth, move out into the earth. Be creative, bless your world. God is in effect saying in creation and in redemption, I want you to be so secure in who I have created you to be that you have no worries about yourself. And it is that security that allows you to move towards others in love. But instead of obeying God, the human race here uh, preferred centralization and homogeneity over uh, diversity, over um, blessing the earth. It's an attempt at self-protection, the result of which is not the common good, but rather it always involves uh, self-protection of the powerful at the expense of others. That's what's happening in the building of the tower. And so what we see in this passage, uh, you know, some of the earlier sections of Genesis point us toward the, sort of to the sinfulness of disobeying God. Uh, don't, don't disobey God because it's wrong, it's, it's immoral, but this passage really highlights for us the, the foolishness, the tragedy. Uh, it's, it's bad for us to disobey God. It's tragic, and the tragedy is this, that any attempt to build an identity apart from God is un inherently unstable and prone to disintegration. Any attempt to build an identity apart from God is inherently unstable and prone to disintegration. That's the tragedy. And we see this really in the second part of verse four. Rather than obeying God and spreading out to fill and bless the earth, it says they, built this, they build this tower, but why do they build the tower? in order to make a name for ourselves. In the Bible, uh, one of the things that we see is that naming something uh, is equivalent to having authority over it. And this is why in Genesis 1, we see God naming the specific parts of his creation. Um, naming them and giving them purpose, and he has authority over them, and then we see this even in, um, in Adam naming the animals, having authority over them. And so what this is saying is that to make a name for ourselves is to assert our self-made autonomous independence from God. By rejecting God's instruction to, to fill the earth, they have, they have moved themselves into this posture that is inherently unstable. If you need to make a name for yourself, what does that imply? If you need to make a name for yourself, it implies that you don't have a name. 
If you seek to build a reputation for yourself, it implies that you don't already have one. Making a name for ourselves is about looking for a way to feel good about ourselves based on what we can do, what we accomplish. And it is an incredibly, you look at this and it's one of the most ancient accounts of the human race that there is, and yet it's an incredibly modern problem. We live in a world where the pursuit of making a name for ourselves is at the heart of so much of what we do. Uh, there has really been two ways that human beings throughout our history have tried to make a name for ourselves, two ways that we've tried to build an identity. And the, the, there's the traditional way of building an identity. The traditional way of building an identity is to look to our people, to look to our tribe or our nation or our family or our guild. And uh, there are cultural norms inherent in any people group. And the traditional way of building an identity is saying, we, we try to live up to the cultural norms of our people, of our tribe, of our you know, nation, of our family, of our guild. And if we live up to the ideals, the cultural norms of others, then they honor us and we have made a name for ourselves. Now recently, modern people have rejected that approach and they've said uh, that it's inauthentic to base our dignity, our value, our worth on anything that other people would say about us. And so what have we done as modern people? We have said we're not gonna build an identity by looking outward to what other people say about us. Instead, we're gonna turn in and we're gonna look within ourselves. And so the rise of the, the, the therapeutic approach to building an identity has taken hold of us. I have to look inside myself. I have to build an identity that is authentic to who I really am. And that sounds great at first. The problem is that it is an incredibly fragile identity. See, when we look to others, when we look to people, we can have a very stable identity, but it feels inauthentic. When we look inside, it feels authentic, but it's unstable, unstable. It's incredibly fragile. And uh, one of the major problems with seeking to build an identity by looking within ourselves is this. We are not as consistent <laughs> as we think we are. Um, I often want something and the polar opposite of that thing at the same time. Uh, I'm gonna illustrate that in a sec, but can we just agree, I'm gonna say something about myself. Let's not let this be the thing that we talk about after the service, okay? Can we make that deal? Okay, so let's just say for the sake of argument, I'm trying to lose weight, okay? And let's just say that by some miracle, it's actually working, okay? And again, just like hypothetically, let's say that I get to the place where I'm like a pound and a half away from reaching my goal weight. Now, when that happens, theoretically, there are two opposing thoughts that occur to me almost every day. I'm a pound and a half away from my goal weight. There's one thought that says, if I just fast for the next 24 hours, then I'm there. And at the same time, I think I am so close. I can eat whatever I want and it's fine. Right? And I want to do both of those at 11 a.m. every single day. And so the question that we have to think about is this, which of those two desires is my authentic self? And the reality is that they're both my authentic self. 
And we start to see why looking inside ourselves to determine who we really are is an incredibly and inherently unstable thing. The problem with the traditional self is that we think it's inauthentic, but the problem with the modern approach to identity, to building an identity we're discovering is that the authentic self is often quite incoherent. And so um, one of the problems that I think is beginning to come to light in our culture is the reality that we have sort of baked into the way that we talk and the way we think and the way that we form uh, culture, this idea that um, you have to look within yourself and determine who you really are. I mean, we put this in uh, graduation speeches. It's the theme of every Disney movie. Uh, in the last 20 years, and yet it is letting us down at an alarming rate. Jim Carrey, the, uh, the famous comedian, he said, I think everybody should have the chance to get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so that they can see that that is not the answer. And one of the ironies, I think, of the time that we're living in, I, I started going down this rabbit hole a little bit this week, the number of celebrities who point to just the emptiness of having a name. What is being a celebrity other than having a name? And that's what, it, that's what it means to be a celebrity, is to have a name that you recognize. Selena Gomez, pop star, talks about her desire as a young artist pursuing her career. In a 2017 interview with Rolling Stone magazine, she said, I remember being on stage and hearing the crowd cheering my name, but I felt empty inside, and I didn't know who I was anymore. See, most of us think the problem is that we haven't actually made the name for ourselves, but those who have made a name for themselves say, you can be in a stadium of adoring fans who are shouting your name at you, and it makes you feel empty. Again, tragically, I mean, we can think of countless celebrities who have made a name for themselves, whose lives have ended tragically. Elvis Presley, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, Anthony Bourdain, Robin Williams just recently, Matthew Perry, and we could go on and on and on, right? Tragedy. Here's the point. We don't know how to make a name for ourselves. The reality is that we don't know how to build an identity that does not lead to either disintegration for ourselves or for other people. Fed up with trying to build a name for ourselves by living up to the expectations of others, we in the West have opted instead for an individualism that says, I alone will determine my value. I alone will determine my course in life. I alone will determine what makes me happy. And here's the thing, and this ancient text is showing us, the problem with that isn't just that it's wrong in the sense that it's immoral. The problem is that it doesn't work. It's tragic. Cornel West, um, I don't know how to describe Cornel West, if you know who Cornel West is. That probably makes sense. Cornell West says, individualism is the great lie of American culture. It tells us that we are all self-made, that we owe nothing to anyone, and that we can achieve anything we set our minds to. This is a lie because we are all in interdependent. 
We all rely on each other for our survival and well-being, and when we put our individual needs ahead of the needs of the community, we all suffer. This is the tragedy of making a name for ourselves, the tragedy of Babel. But the second thing that this passage highlights for us is not just the tragedy, not just that it like, doesn't work, but the foolishness, the folly of Babel. The passage shows us the foolishness of individualism and self-centered pride or, or seeking to make a name for ourselves, of seeking immortality through what we accomplish and leaving God out of the equation. And there are, there are three ironies in this passage that point out the foolishness of this approach to life. The first is this, our greatest achievements are insignificant. Verse five is sort of the hinge of this passage. Uh, the first several verses build, uh, talk about the, uh, the activity of human beings. The, the second half of the passage talks about the the activity of God in verse five is the middle, the hinge point in verse five says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Do you see what's happening here? <laughs> They're trying to make a name for themselves by building a tower with its top in the heavens and God says, oh, let me see what you're doing. I, I, I can't even see it from where I'm sitting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, God's saying, from my vantage point, enthroned in the heavens, this doesn't even show up on my radar. I guess I will have to come down to look and see what you're doing. Isaiah 40, 22 says, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Uh, you know, I usually have thought about that verse thinking, you know, grasshoppers are small, but the point I realize is that the grasshoppers are in the grass. God, God's enthroned above the earth and he can't even see us because we're like grasshoppers hidden in the grass. He doesn't even see it. And so what this is saying is we can't take ourselves so seriously. God in his kindness pays attention to us. God is not belittling us. But when in our arrogance and our self-centered individualistic pride, we say we're gonna make a name for ourselves, God says, from where I'm sitting, it's not even showing up on my radar. The second irony in this passage is this, that uh, this passage shows us that seeking to build a name for ourselves, we are sowing the seeds of our own destruction. Verse seven, come let us go down and there confuse their language. One of the uh, the literary aspects of this passage that uh, is not obvious to us in the English translation. But scholars point out is that in Hebrew, the consonants in the word, and Hebrew is a word that is, in its strictest sense, Hebrew is a, is a word. Hebrew is a tr uh, language that is written without vowels. And, and so in, um, in Hebrew, the consonants in the word let us confuse are the same as the consonants that we saw uh, earlier in the passage when the people said, let us build. Does that make sense? So the, the kind of root, the consonants that form the word, let us build, are the same as the consonants in the word when God says, let us confuse. And what he's saying, what he's pointing, it's a, it's a play on words. And the point is this, that even before God comes down, even in the planning stages of this great name-building, identity-seeking project, in the foundation of the tower are the seeds of its undoing. It cannot stand on its own premises. 
Uh, do you remember the, <clears throat> uh, the cartoon with Wiley Coyote <laughs> and the Roadrunner? Like, this is what is constantly happening to Wiley Coyote as he's trying to get the Roadrunner. You know, he, he, he builds the bomb, but it explodes on himself. He saws off the branch that he is standing on. He sets the thing up and he's going to pull this thing and the anvil, the Acme anvil is going to fall on the Roadrunner, but he always mistimes it and the anvil falls on his own head. He is sowing his own destruction. In a fallen world, all of our attempts to make a name for ourselves contain the seeds of our own undoing. And uh, we could probably see that in many ways, but the, the greatest re- testament to that reality is the, the reality of time and death. A um, hundred years from now, you know, all new people, somebody said. A hundred years from now, our names, no matter the significance of what we accomplish in this life, uh, we might be remembered by our great-grandchildren you know, our great-great-grandchildren might someday do whatever the 100 years from now version of uh, Ancestry.com looks like and find out, oh, I had an ancestor once who lived in this place. Like, our names will be forgotten. Or, or think about it like this. We go to Europe, right? You go on vacation and you see these important, you go see these sites and you go see these uh, things that have happened, historical sites. You see you know, statues that were built to honor uh, significant people, and you have to go read the plaque at their feet. Read about who was this person and why are they significant. And their statue is, you know, crumbling over, and there's a pigeon standing on their head, you know. <laughs> Insignificance. In the... Um, We're sowing the seeds of our own destruction when we seek to make a name for ourselves. The third thing that we see, the third irony in this passage is this. When you seek to make a name for yourself, uh, you won't like the name that you make. Deeply ironic. The name you make for yourself is a name that you won't actually like. And again, in the passage here, verse 9, therefore, its name was called Babel, or it's probably better pronounced Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Okay, if you're working through this passage, it's a strange conclusion, verse 9. When you see the word therefore, you know this, that you're going to get a concluding statement that talks about the significance of this whole account. And so we read nine verses, and then it says therefore, and the conclusion that this has all been leading to is the definition of the word Babel. Like, that's... Strange. Why does that matter to us? Why does God tell us this story in order to define a word? Well, the, the Babylonians who built the tower said that Babel uh, was Babel is kind of this conjunctive word that means gate of God. That's what they said Babel meant, gate of God. The idea of entering into immortality or entering into God's presence through their own achievements, the gate of God. And God gives another take on what they have done, and he says, therefore, the word, uh, the meaning of the word Babel is foolishness. The word Babel in Hebrew sounds like, the, or the word Babel sounds like the Hebrew word that means fool. Fool. 
And, and we actually kind of get that even in English, you know, when we talk about somebody babbling on, uh, a babble, like babbling like a babbling idiot. You know, we're talking about somebody who just speaks nonsense, foolishness. And what this is telling us is that when we seek to build an identity for ourselves apart from God, it will never satisfy. When we make a name for ourselves apart from God, we won't like the name that we make. And of course, you know, we can see that illustrated in the you know, celebrities that I referred to earlier. Let me just tell you one more. So uh, Madonna. I, for a long time, assumed that Madonna was like a stage name. And I actually looked it up this week. Did you know that Madonna was actually her first name? Like the name her parents gave her was Madonna and then she has a last name that none of us know. But talk about making a name for yourself. You are globally known by your first name. And yet in a interview with Vanity Fair in 1991, Madonna said, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. Talk about making a name for yourself. And she says, it's not enough. I am driven by a fear of being mediocre, of being insignificant. This is deeply ironic. When we try to build a name for ourselves, it doesn't work. And so God, in his mercy, confuses their languages, confuses their efforts, and he spreads them uh, across the earth. I, I had never really picked up on this before, but I, this week was listening to a sermon on this passage by uh, Dick Kaufman, who uh, is this wonderful, humble man who actually passed away earlier this year that I got to work with briefly a number of years ago. And Dick, in his message, pointed out that um, this, this can sound to us like spite. Like God doesn't like what, what they're doing, and so he confuses their languages, and he spreads them across the face of the earth. But um, it says in verse 6, God says, he does this because this is only the beginning of what they will do. And the idea is that left to themselves, a united human race will accomplish or is capable of accomplishing great harm. And what, what, what Dick Hoffman says is, is something like this, you know, a thousand lies, um, the pursuit of a thousand lies will do less damage than being united behind the pursuit of one lie. Um, while we see the unity of the human race in creation, while we see that ultimately it is God's goal in, uh, in the redemption of the world in the book of Revelation to unite the human race, in our fallenness, God brings confusion in his mercy to prevent us from excelling in our rebellion against him. And uh, we experience that on a personal level very often it is our own confusion. It is our own frustration that causes us to cry out to God. In fact, I had never realized or put this together before, but um, I think that's, that's what Paul is talking about in Acts 17. When Paul, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul goes to Athens and he's presenting the gospel to the thinkers of the day, the philosophers in Athens. Uh, listen to, notice the word here, 
when they hear the gospel, some of them respond and say, we want to hear more about what you're saying. Some of them respond and say, what is this babbler talking about? Interesting word there. But he talks about God creating us and scattering us across the earth. And Paul says, in order that we should seek God, perhaps feeling our way towards him. God confuses our efforts at building an identity for ourselves so that in our confusion, we might cry out to him and seek him. Uh, Several years ago, as you know, if you're uh, a regular part of our congregation here, my family was involved in starting a church in Orange County. And um, starting, planting this church in Orange County was like riding a roller coaster. And it was like, it was great, and then it was not so great, and great, and not so great. And um, as the pastor of this church, I'm just riding the ups and downs of this emotional roller coaster. And in a season of discouragement, I was meeting with a guy in our church And he said to me something like this. He said, you know, I know that it's hard and I know that you're discouraged, but can you think about for a second how intolerable you would have been if this had gone really well from the beginning? And I thought, I really don't like being seen in that sort of a way. Um, Thank you very much. (laughs) But he's right. And we tend to not learn um, the lessons that God is teaching us when everything is going well for us. And so God in his mercy and his grace confuses our efforts to make a name for ourselves so that we might seek him in his name instead. And that brings us to the third thing in this passage. Really this passage points us to the answer to Babel. And I think we have to be cautious about the remedy here to the, this impulse towards um, identity building, because especially as Christians, it's entirely possible for us to do something like uh, pointing out the sin of pride in others in a way that leads us to fall into the very same ditch. And um, again, Dick Kaufman uh, in his sermon said, uh, it's, 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 it's incredible. I knew Dick kind of towards the later part of his life, and he has always struck me as this incredibly gentle and humble man, but he said, um, he says, as a younger man, I was incredibly proud. And as, when I became a Christian, I was wrestling with my own pride. And I decided that I was going to memorize verses on humility. And one morning, I was on my way out of the house. And I stopped and I said to my wife, uh, he, he said, you know, I, last night, I, I memorized three new verses on humility. I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> But we can see the subtlety of this. Um, I don't want to be known as a proud person. Perhaps I can be known as a person who's not proud. And I'm still making a name for myself either way. The real problem is that whether we are trying to build an identity through what we do or through what we don't do, either way, we are making a name, we're seeking an identity apart from God. So the solution is not anything that we can do or that we don't do. So what is the solution? Well, we've said that the traditional approach to building a name for ourselves, seeking to build an identity for ourselves is to look to others. The modern approach is to look inside ourselves, but they're both fragile. And what this passage points us to is the solution, which is seen not in making a name for ourselves, but rather in receiving a name from God. 
The passage shows us that when people sought to make a name for themselves at Babel, God came down and their efforts were frustrated. But as the story continues, we see that there comes another time when God comes down, coming down not to frustrate, but to redeem. In Christ, God comes down to us as Emmanuel, God with us. And as he prepares to go to the cross, Jesus prays in John 12. It says that as he is preparing to go to the cross, he begins to experience the confusion and the frustration and the disintegration that we all know. And Jesus prays, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And so he prays instead, Father, glorify your name. See, Jesus, the perfect one, experiences the frustration, the disintegration that comes as a result of our sin, and yet instead of turning and protecting himself, he prays, Father, glorify your name, and goes to the cross. In Philippians 2, Paul, talking about what Christ has done in his sacrifice on the cross, writes these words, Therefore, because of what he has done, therefore, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. On the cross, Jesus doesn't seek his own name, but subjects himself to confusion and is pulled apart as he bears the weight of our sin. In seeking to glorify God rather than himself, Jesus exchanges places with us, and the Father looks at his Son. Paul tells us that the Father gives him the name above every name. Stunning. Here's the point. That is the name that you receive when you come to Christ. And that is the name that in your baptism, if you are a Christian, is is symbolically placed upon you, God putting his name on you when you are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And your identity is secure in him because it is not based on your ability to live up to what people expect of you, nor is it based on your attempt to be true to yourself. Rather, your identity is secure because it is received from God, and that means you can rest in him. It also means that you can risk for him. You can take risks in order to live in light of the way he calls you to live without the danger that failure will tear you apart. It's the only way we can find a name, build an identity, not through actually building an identity, but by receiving it from God himself. God gave Jesus the name above every name, and he places that name upon you in your baptism. Several years ago, when I was a college pastor, pastoring college students in Salt Lake City, I um, met a college student, a freshman named Julie. Actually, not her real name, but we'll call her Julie. And um, as I got to know her, she began to tell, usually I would sit down with students and just say, tell me your story. And they would begin to tell me usually fairly ordinary 
uh, accounts of where they grew up, but Julie's story was very different. Julie said, uh, my dad died when I was four years old. And she says, sometimes when I think about it, I think I can still remember what he looked like. But she said, my father's death caused my mom to spiral out of control, and my mom went into a life of looking for significance in alcohol and drugs and men. And when I was eight years old, I um, became a ward of the state. And she said that uh, she lived in foster care from eight years old onward, and in junior high and high school, she would go to foster families and she described the experience of walking into a new home every couple months and thinking, is this my home? Is this my family? Are these my people? But she said, I never found my forever home. And when I was 18, I aged out of the foster care system. She said, I had to sleep on friends' couches for the last few months to graduate from high school. But the benefit of being a ward of the state in the state of Utah was that she got to go to college for free. And so she shows up her freshman year at the University of Utah where someone in her dorm invited her to a Bible study. She said, I sat in this Bible study and I finally understood that I didn't have to clean my life up in order to find a name for myself. And I got baptized, and God placed his name upon me, and for the first time, I felt clean and wanted because God had given his name to me. And I have a name, and I'm clean. Friends, that's what God is doing. That's what this passage is pointing us to. Have we forgotten why we're here? We've got to remember the story. Let me finish by telling you the story of a couple who got this story into their bones and remembered why they're here. And, you know, I said it earlier, many of us are retired. Bob and Sharon Drews were a retired couple. They had been a Navy couple. Bob was a career uh, officer in the Navy. He moved around a ton, including living overseas at a couple points. They had spent some time in Japan when he was stationed there and developed a love for the Japanese people. And so after retiring from the Navy in the mid-90s, Bob Drews went to work in the private sector, but when an opportunity came to serve a uh, sort of medium-term mission service with uh, MTW, or Denominations Missions Wing in Japan, they'd leapt at the opportunity. And so for three years, they served in Tokyo, where their goal was to support uh, Japanese pastors and Christians so that they could focus their energy on discipling uh, and planting churches and communicating the good news of Jesus to the Japanese people. And they went, to the, they went to Tokyo for three years, and at the end of their term there, Sharon Drews was looking forward eagerly to their term being up so they could finally retire, so they could move back home and she could enjoy her six grandkids. And towards the end of their time in Tokyo, Bob Drews goes for a walk with another missionary friend, 
and they're walking and they sit down on a bench in the Tokyo Harbor where they can see uh, the city. And they begin to talk to one another and they just name family after family that they've seen impacted for the gospel in their time in Japan. And Bob looks at his friend and says, we can't leave here, can we? How can we go back? And so, uh, (laughs) sorry. So Bob goes back to their apartment and he walks in the door and Sharon looks at him and goes, oh no. (laughs) And Bob says, uh, I think God wants us to stay. And Sharon says, he doesn't. And Bob thinks to himself, like, I'm, I'm going to have to stay, but my wife's going to go back. And she says, she says, um, he doesn't want us to stay here, I'm convinced, but I will go and I'll sit on this bench where God spoke to you. And so Sharon Drews goes and she sits on that bench and an hour later she comes back to the apartment and she says to her husband, we have to stay for as long as God wants us. Do you know why? She says, because my six grandchildren all have Christian parents and a Christian school and a church and community and friends to go to and not one of these children in Japan does. So we're staying. Why do people do that? I would suggest to you, friends, that these are not people who walk into the metaphorical room of life and say, why am I here? These are people who have gotten the story in their bones. They're not people who are thinking about making a name for themselves, but they are people who have heard and retold this story so many times that it has begun to affect the way that they live. This is what God is doing in our lives. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for the way that you have come down That, Lord, when we seek to build a name for ourselves, in your grace, you confuse our efforts so that we might seek you and reach out to you. We pray, O God, that the story of what you have done in human history would not remain just a distant, abstract fact, but that we would get it into our bones that we might receive the name that you have given to us in Christ and that because we have received your name, you have placed your name upon us, we would be people who live with purpose in the midst of this world. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.